Hear the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat, who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the, over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word and for what it reveals to us, even through images that can often mystify us. We depend on your spirit to help us understand your word, to, uh, um, to believe it, to apply it to our lives. And so we ask that your spirit would attend us now as we open your word together. May you show forth to us the glories of Christ. Would you use this passage to form his image in us and to form our affections for him? We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, you, you may be looking at the text and then at the title of the sermon in the bulletin and back to, your, to the text and wondering, how on earth is this about martyrdom? And if you were, I wouldn't blame you for it. On its face, this passage seems to be about judgment. In the prophets, we are given these exact images of God's judgment, a sickle that goes out across the earth to cut down his enemies, of God trampling his enemies like one trampling grapes in a wine press. And in the Gospels, Harvest language, like we see here, is often applied to the great day of sifting, when Christ keeps the grain and gathers it into his barn, but throws away the chaff to be burned by the fire. And so if you, took, if you look at the text and think of it this way, you would be in the company of most scholars commenta- uh, commenting on this passage. And while I'm rarely a contrarian, I am in this case convinced by the, by the minority view, which uh, I believe was initially put forward by a Bible scholar named uh, James Jordan, whose, whose work helped me a lot in, in coming uh, to my conclusions on this passage. Um, and his view, and mine, is that actually this is a depiction not of judgment, but of martyrdom. Martyrdom that serves in the end to feed God's judgment, but that has other purposes as well, as we will come to see. Uh, 
And so let me take just a bit of, a, a bit of an extended intro to tell you why I and Nate are, are convinced by this view. And in the process of that intro, you know, we will review once again how we are going about tra- uh, interpreting Revelation. We have a, a certain method that, that we are, are following. And so there are, are several reasons to take this text as being about martyrdom, and, and here are three of them. So one reason is the broad context of the book of Revelation. We have been working from the conviction that when chapter 1, verse 1 says that this revelation is given from God to show His servant the things that must soon take place, we take soon as meaning before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And we have that conviction because in Matthew 24, Jesus tells his disciples about the events leading up to the destruction of the temple, and when he does, he uses many images like what we see in the book of Revelation. Wars and rumors of war, false Christs, uh, famine, persecution, the sun being darkened, the stars falling from the skies, and more. And then, towards the end of that discourse, he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, these things are happening in your lifetime. You and your children will see these events take place. And so, the the first uh, historical events on which we seek to map the images of Revelation are not primarily the events of final judgment but the events of first century judgment, which included much persecution and culminated in the destruction of the temple. And that leads to a second reason to take this as being about martyrdom. Given that this era was uh, so full of persecution of God's saints, one of the main goals of Revelation is to encourage those facing persecution and threat of death to stay faithful, to know what their, martyr, what their martyrdom would really mean and be, and what will happen next. One of the main characters in the book of Revelation are the martyrs who stand with the Lamb and reign and who are vindicated by God. In many ways, Revelation is the heavenly perspective of what they are facing on earth in the first century and what their true end will be. It is written to sustain faithful endurance through tribulation. Okay, so those are the first two reasons. One is the broad context of Revelation. A second is one of the main aims of Revelation. And then a third reason to take this as being about martyrdom, probably the most convincing reason, is the immediate context of our passage. And here's where it's helpful to to have your your Bible with you, as you can flip around a little bit as I'm referencing some verses. At the top of chapter 14, we are reintroduced to the 144,000 that we saw in chapter 7 and chapter 6, which we identified then as Jewish Christians killed for their witness. And Chapter 14, verse 4, calls them first fruits. Okay, well, what do we see in our passage? We see a harvesting of first fruits, of grain and of grapes, the first crop, so to speak, being gathered in 
by God. And as we look ahead to Revelation 16 and 17, we read of Babylon the Great being made to drink the cup of God's wrath, which contains, chapter 17, 6 says, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so our passage is part of the development of this cup imagery that plays a significant role as Revelation unfolds. Here is where the wine of God's wrath is being made. The wine comes from the trampling of the grapes. So God's wrath, it is not God's wrath coming down on the martyrs. It is their persecution crushing them, filling up the cup that is God's wrath and on which God, which God will pour on his enemies. So the wine comes from the trampling of the grapes from Christians being killed for their faithful witness. And so I think there is good reason to see this passage as being about martyrdom. And in particular, here is what it teaches us. And if you're taking notes, you can put this down as a main point. Martyrdom is God collecting a harvest while storing up wrath. Martyrdom is God collecting His harvest while storing up wrath. Something more is happening in martyrdom than meets the eye. And I want to present four encouraging realities about martyrdom and about lesser forms of persecution to help us endure and know that our trial is not in vain, but is in fact meaningful and glorious. I know perhaps most of us need to be pushed in the, into the ring, so to speak. You know, we're, we're being quiet in our little corners with our Christian witness. Would we enter in if we knew that the worst that could happen to us is, in fact, blessing? Let's see if we can all move in toward the middle of the ring together by taking a look at these four truths, and I will name them as I go. So here's truth number one about martyrdom. Martyrdom happens under God's power. Martyrdom happens under God's power. Look at how this vision begins there in, in verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is an image of victory, power, and glory. And it's lifted from Daniel 7. Let me read a portion of Daniel 7 to you so that you get more of an idea of what's, uh, what's in view here. Here's a portion of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is this that is seated 
on the cloud. It is the risen Christ, the one with dominion, an everlasting dominion. Who is wearing the crown? The king. And what is his crown like? It is golden and enduring. It's not going anywhere. There will not arise another king to topple this king over and take the crown and put it on his head. No, this crown is here to stay. This is the last, final, everlasting king with enduring dominion. And so, if the rest of this vision is indeed about the gathering of God's children through martyrdom, then what we have at the outset of the vision is a deeply encouraging truth that martyrdom happens under God's power and authority. The king holds the sickle. If he gathers you, even through martyrdom, he gathers you in power. Would we believe that persecution is God's power in disguise? Doesn't Stephen teach us this in Acts 6 and 7? There we have the first recorded martyrdom of the early church. And the scene begins in Stephen, who has been doing great signs and wonders in the Spirit. He's on trial, and false witnesses are hurling accusations at him. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. It's following the path of our Lord. And it says in chapter 6 that his face, just before he preached, was like the face of an angel. It was aglow with the glory of God. And so under God's power, he preaches this biting, incisive sermon to his fellow Jews, where he tells them, you have, you have forsaken the promises of God. You have put to death your own Messiah. And this is how the scene ends. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I mean, look at that. Stephen is outside the city. He's covered in dust. The sun is beating down on him. And one stone after another is taking his life. But what does he see? He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees glory. From the earthly side, Stephen is accursed. From the heavenly side, Stephen is early fruit. He is blessed. God is gathering in grain. 
and grapes. And so we see that martyrdom happens under God's power. The one with the sickle is the one on the throne. And so that's the first point, that martyrdom happens under God's power. And the second, he is like it. Martyrdom happens at the right time. Point number two, martyrdom happens at the right time. In verse 15, look there with me. The angel comes out of the temple and says, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That is, the the first crop of grain has finished growing and it's time to bring it in. And there are echoes here of the parable of the sower from Mark chapter 4, which goes like this. And he, Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grape is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's being described in our passage is the, is the first of many early harvests, the first fruits. This is the good crop that responded in faith to the seed of God's word. And now they are being harvested at the proper hour, at the proper hour. And this means, among other things, that God has established a time an hour, a moment in history for gathering his saints. When Jesus was led away to be crucified, it was his time. The hour had come. When Stephen was taken outside the city to be stoned, his hour had come. When Peter was martyred, it was his time. His hour had come. And the time wasn't set by the people holding stones or driving in nails. It was set by God. The scriptures are clear on this. God numbers the hairs of our heads and he numbers our days. Psalm 139 says, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me. And eventually you come to the last page. And the book ends on time. The comfort to the believer who faces death, whether naturally or through accident or through martyrdom, is that, in fact, nothing gets cut short. God has appointed a time to gather you to himself. And, you know, for many, that can be unsettling that God chooses when we die. But the alternative is that your death is out of his control, which is not a better alternative. If you believe, as you should, as the scriptures teach, that God is perfect in his wisdom, in his love, in his goodness, in his purposes, and that precious to him are the death of his saints, then it is a comfort to you that your time is already fixed, already decided by this God with a perfect plan. It means that we can live with courage, 
knowing that God keeps us alive until the time that he has set to take us home. I believe I've shared this quote before, but it's worth repeating, especially in this context. I want you to hear these words from a missionary named John Payton, who ministered in the, in the late 1800s and faced constant persecution. And here he's describing a time that he was almost killed in his ministry. He says this, My heart rose up to the Lord. I saw him watching all the scene. And my peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal until my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would fire to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not an arrow leave the bow without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. Doesn't he sound like Stephen? He was a man who knew that God knew the hour, and it was enough for him. May it be so with us. May we have peace and assurance in God's timing of all things, including our death and including martyrdom, persecution, and suffering. Whatever happens, it happens under God's power and it happens at the right time. And so those are our first two points, that martyrdom happens under God's power and it happens at the right time. Here's point number three. Martyrdom happens because of union with Christ and his mission. Martyrdom happens because of union with Christ and his mission. And I'm getting this from verse 20, where it says that the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now, earlier in Revelation 14, these first fruits are called those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And you know, by the way, I love that image of lambs following a lamb. <laughs> you know, it's not lambs following a shepherd, although of course we do follow the great shepherd. But here, with intention, the language is that of identification with the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who was killed for the sins of the world to redeem those who would believe in him. Martyrs and all Christians are those who follow the lamb. And where did this lamb go to be slaughtered? He went outside the city. Here's how Hebrews 13, 12 through 13 puts it, a very important passage for our topic. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The work Jesus came to do to sanctify the people through his own blood, he did it outside the city. And it was a bloodbath. The culmination of Jesus' mission, his work, his life happened outside the city in a place of dereliction and pain. 
And because we are not above our master, as God's people, we are called to bear that same reproach. Martyrdom is the most accurate picture of the Christian life. Not all of us will be called to martyrdom, but it is the full form of the cruciform life to be killed for being on mission, to follow Christ as far as death, to take up his mission, which included his suffering. And that's what's bound up in this. Jesus' mission, why did he die? To sanctify people. He died to bring people to God, and Christians bear the same reproach in their mission. An easy way to avoid the sufferings of Christ is to not take up the mission of Christ. But the two go together. You know, I can't help but think in this of how Jesus responded when the mother of James and John asked if he would set them at his, le uh, his left hand and his right when he came into his kingdom. Would you seat my sons in honor, please? And Jesus says to them, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink, which is the cup of wrath, the cup of suffering? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Martyrdom reminds us what our mission is. It is to imitate Christ even unto death, a death that has missional power. Again, Stephen offers us a wonderful picture of union with Christ in his martyrdom. You can hear echoes of the Lord Jesus in what he says when he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. As it, it's as if he was already determined to follow the lamb in the manner of the lamb wherever he might lead. My friends, we too must resolve in our hearts to follow the lamb, to speak the truth, to be on mission, to be the fragrance of Christ to the world, to forgive our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, and to bear whatever reproach comes our way, entrusting ourselves to God and to Christ, who already endured our, repro our reproach in perfect faithfulness. We must do the work, whatever the cost. One last truth to close us out, and I'll be, I'll be brief. We've seen that martyrdom happens under God's power, happens at the right time, and happens because of union with Christ and his mission. But here, the end of the story is this, that martyrdom will be avenged. That's point number four. Martyrdom will be avenged. The grapes, the martyrs, are trampled down for a reason. And that reason is to make wine. And it is a wrath wine. It is the wine that God will pour out upon Babylon the Great, 
the harlot and mother of harlots, which is the empire and the unbelieving Jewish persecutors of the church rolled into one. The, it's Israel gets into bed with the empire, so to speak, and so becomes one flesh with her, and that is Babylon, the great persecutor of the church. And the passage is clear as Revelation unfolds. The Babylon will drink the blood it spilled. God always avenges bloodshed. And here, he is returning the blood of the martyrs upon the head of Babylon, and the cup will be full. In waiting for this first fruit to fully develop, God is not only gathering the full crop, he is filling up his full wrath. 1,600 stadia, four by four times 100, a number of completeness to show the intensity of God's wrath. Great will be the wrath because precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. Whatever persecution you endure, my friends, rest in this. They are recorded There is a judge who judges justly, who rides on the clouds and has a sickle in his hand. And he knows, he knows those who are his, and he knows the wrongs done to them. The bloodshed outside the city will be poured out on the city in judgment. And now let me end here with a question. Which city are you in? Remember, this is happening outside the city. Do you know what is said in Revelation of this city? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Well, Babylon will get her turn to drain the cup. She already did in the first century in the toppling over of the temple, a judgment against the wicked city, which Jerusalem, God's chosen city, had become the wicked city. And she will again when this all folds up and a new city emerges in its fullness. The surprise here is that actually you want to be outside the city, the old city, because God is preparing the inside of that city for destruction while those on the outside are being formed into a new everlasting city where righteousness and justice reign. Here again from Hebrews so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Listen, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here is the hope of the martyr and all those persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
it is a blessed thing to be led outside the city because that's not the city we seek. That's not the city we inherit. Though we die outside the city, we come to reign in the clouds with our Lord, seated with him in glory in the new and lasting city. Blessed are you when others persecute you and revile you and utter all kind of false accusations against you for righteousness' sake. So let us bear the reproach of our neighbors for our neighbors and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly and who will gather us when it is time and gather us into glory. Let us pray. Father, give us endurance. Give us courage to get out into the world with the word of Christ on our lips. Help us to take up the mission of God, to partake in the sufferings of Christ, to count them a blessing and not a curse. Father, we want to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Would you hasten our steps and help us to do that? And Father, if there is anyone here who is still inside the city marked for destruction, oh God, I pray that you would grant them faith and repentance to flee that city and make their way outside the camp where the blood of Christ was shed, that they would wash themselves in his blood and be made perfect, that they may not drink the cup of wrath, but instead taste from the cup of salvation. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.